Welcome to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and this is a series from Lacuna magazine, going behind the environmental headlines, making space to discuss some of the deeper ideas that could shape our planet's future. The last year or so has been pretty wild, and it can be hard to make sense of such huge events. The pandemic, the police violence, the bushfires. But while this is often called some new normal, for those that have had to endure deep inequality, this injustice is nothing new. Today I'm going to be talking about environmental justice, the idea that there are certain groups who are the hardest hit by environmental inequalities, not just globally but within countries as well, why certain communities end up having polluting carbon-intensive industries built right next door to them, who has access to green space and who doesn't, who has access to good food, to decent housing, to safe streets. We know that those living with worse air quality have much higher incidences of respiratory diseases including COVID. We know that in the UK, black, Asian and minority ethnic groups are twice as likely to die of COVID. Last year, the impacts of police brutality and the unaddressed legacy of colonialism were made all too apparent. And we've also seen how some groups are being disproportionately affected by the climate unravelling. The floods in India, the fires in Australia. Environmental justice sees all of this, the poverty, the racism, the ill health, as one story. And this conversation has helped me make more sense of the current turmoil we find ourselves in and how we might go about addressing it. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm speaking with Beverly Wright, environmental justice scholar, advocate, author, activist, civic leader and professor of sociology. She's the founder and executive director of the Deep South Centre for Environmental Justice. It's a battle that we are winning and we're winning because they can't save the planet without saving us. Dr. Beverly Wright has had a long and distinguished career in academia and activism as well as being a prolific writer. At the heart of her work from the beginning has been her commitment to exposing the connections between race and pollution, tackling environmental justice. In 1992, she founded the Deep South Centre for Environmental Justice in Louisiana, what came to be the first environmental justice centre in the United States. The majority of the centre's work has been with communities living on the lower Mississippi River, a stretch so polluted that it has come to be known as Cancer Alley. Almost 80% of African Americans there live in polluted neighbourhoods. She was also heavily involved in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, a catastrophe that highlighted the systemic racism in the United States. She showed how black families suffered increased exposure to pollutants in the hurricane's aftermath, and she helped support the city's displaced residents, the vast majority of them black, in returning to their homes. Beverly has been in this work since the 1970s, and what she does is just as vital now. During the pandemic, the US Environmental Protection Agency suspended enforcement of anti-pollution regulations. That meant that those living in toxic areas, areas like the Mississippi River Corridor, areas that are disproportionately the home of communities of colour, were even more vulnerable to diseases than before. And that includes COVID, 
which appears to have more severe impacts on those who are forced to breathe bad air. The phrase that Wright helped popularise more than three decades ago, the wrong complexion for protection, is as true now as it ever was. I began by asking Beverly how she became involved in the fight for environmental justice. I guess it, to be honest, you don't know where you started until you get towards the end. So what I see now as my beginnings didn't feel like the beginning at the time. So, you know, that's why the growing up uh, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and having the experience of the petrochemical industry, just having an unbelievable influence on Louisiana. It's almost comparable to the influence cotton had on the South and the continuation of slavery because of it. The discovery of oil in Louisiana has had that same impact on where we live, how we live, um, and our economy. Um, it's almost as if um, Louisiana moved from, as they say, from plantation to plants, plants being oil and gas facilities. The way Mississippi River Corridor is set up, we literally had plantations being transformed to, to facilities because it was the perfect environment for the growth of this industry. First, we had whatever kind of oil you needed, sweet crude or whatever it was called that the industry wanted, we were loaded with it, including sulfur in Louisiana. And then because we had been an agricultural state, um, all the plantations were very close to the Mississippi River and they had direct transportation routes of their products to the water. So then it was perfect for the oil industry. It was already set up in such a way that they could build a facility right next to the river. They have all the transportation lines. So we were a perfect place for oil to be king in the way that cotton had been king in itself. So that's really interesting to me that your work on environmental justice, the whole development of your notion of it, wasn't so something that came from an academic background or even just from an activist background, but instead it was very much something that you grew up around and were aware of from a very early age. Growing up, I never had any negative opinions about the oil industry, not understanding the politics behind it, where the state actually forged a very unintelligent contract with the industry. In fact, um, they developed uh, contracts that were not even in their own best interest and gave uh, so many tax dollars away, as is now seen when you compare contracts with Shell, Oil, and Exxon in Louisiana to those of the ones that are between the state of Texas and the same companies. So whereas dirty industry has been profitable in many ways for Texans in that they don't pay state tax at all. All of their state taxes are covered by their oil. In Louisiana, we pay state taxes. We get very little from it. And what it has done is just created an environment for us to get more of the same. So if you have a dirty industry that's paying very low taxes, that's an incentive for other dirty industries to come to our state. And so we end up with the Mississippi River Chemical Corridor, 
an 85 mile stretch of land between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that had 136 petrochemical plants for the longest about 30, 40 years. Now it's up to 156. We're moving in the wrong direction. As people are moving away from oil, we're getting more of it. And so if you want to um, dive into my growing up, um, you know, in Louisiana, absolutely seeing the oil and gas industry as a positive factor in the economy for Louisiana. That wasn't just you because you were growing up and you weren't aware of the issues yet. Everyone saw it as a positive factor for the economy. Yeah, and, and so I do tell that story about my auntie that lived in Baton Rouge and my us living in New Orleans, my dad would visit a lot because it was, now it's like 60 miles. It used to take almost two hours to get there until they built I-10. Now it's a very short ride, but it was a good little two hour drive to Baton Rouge. And I always remember coming home late at night and the sky being lit up like you were in space because as kids, we were lying down in the and you were just looking, you know, out the window at all of the lights everywhere. It was actually beautiful, not knowing, but there was all of these oil and gas plants. And then the odor, you know, would hit us at a certain point. We always knew when it was coming. When you hit a certain line, you got this really pungent, just awful smell. And as kids, we would tease one another and say, oh, mama, you know, he has gas or something like that. You know how kids do, uh, pointing at one another and laughing. So it's always, I, I, I have fond memories of those drives, fond memories of interacting with my sibling in the car and dad saying, every time we did it, when we say, oh, it stinks, he said, oh, it smells like money. Or he'd say, that's progress. So it was always something positive. So that was growing up in Louisiana. And then for a time you moved away from New Orleans and you went up north to grad school in Buffalo in New York. How did you find that change? For me, that experience was the people were white, the snow was white, the sky was white, everything was white. And I came from a place where everything was black because I grew up during segregation. My schools, my church, my neighborhoods, our restaurants, our movie theaters, everything was black. So it was a kind of traumatic experience or could have been. And uh, the systemic racism, back then we called it structural racism. Now the term is systemic. And I think systemic is even a more profound adjective for what we go through than just structural. You know, structural meant that it was embedded within the social structures, education, politics the economics, but systemic says to me that, that it's been transformed into something that's now a part of culture. And it's so deeply rooted that people don't see it, don't even see or recognize it. And even the people being affected don't recognize it because it's, it's moved to a position of normalcy. And dismantling a structure is one thing, but dismantling a system is something else entirely, huh? Exactly. It's something else entirely. It's much harder. And so for, for Black people, seeing George Floyd, 
you know, in the way that we did, for many of us is nothing new. It's just that every black man is taught that the police can be dangerous to us. And it's because we've seen George Floyd over and over again in many ways, beat with Billy Sticks. And, you know, it's just been a part of our culture. You, you merely have to look at the old pictures of lynchings of black men in the South and you see white people out like they're at a picnic. I mean, you know, women smiling and everything for the camera while you have, you know, two men in the back just hanged and dismantled, you know. It, it just tells you how deeply sick and evil and the amount of hatred that has been felt for Black people in this country. And it's all because of slavery. And then the inability of this country to truly dismantle the slave system. You're listening to Spoken Earth in conversation with Beverly Wright. And this fight for environmental justice, of course, is one way of trying to tackle that inequality that is so embedded in the system. Some, something that was so embedded that until you began your work, it wasn't even noticed as a problem. Can you tell me how, how you noticed it, how those first environmental justice campaigns came about? So while I was at SUNY at Buffalo, my major professor began working with the Love Canal a case in Niagara Falls. And it was the first documented case of industrial poisoning of a community. This was a white community. And working in this particular plant, the men who worked there started to have a kind of yellowish coloring to their skin. And it was to the point that people knew where they worked because of this hue that they had in their skin, kind of yellowish. And then they started having just an enormous number of children with leukemia and dying from it. So they started seeing one another at hospitals and it was, they were all from this particular community. And um, so this movement began called Love Canal. That was the name of the group where they fought to get the health department and the Environmental Protection Agency to come in and do work find out what was happening. And as it turns out, they were being poisoned by chemicals and the poison was entered. The actual ground where the communities were because the people who worked in the plant lived in a subdivision right next to the plant. So the air was poisoned, but the ground was also poisoned. So the chemicals had leached into the underground system and now the backyards of all of these people in this community was all also saturated with the poisons. And the children were playing in the yards and they ended up, many of them died from leukemia. Um, and that connection was made. So it became the documented, the first industrial poisoning of a community. And so Dr. Addie Levine and would, would come down to New Orleans and I would have her to present the, the case study that she had done to my classes, not realizing that, boy, I lived in a much, much bigger love canal. I mean, that was, that was a teaspoon of what I was growing up in. And at that point, that you were really unaware of that? I hadn't made the connection then. I mean, it was 
several years of making the connection. And then communities upriver began to complain and a civil rights hearing was had. And by that time, Dr. Robert Bullard and I had started talking about environmental equity, environmental racism. We were beginning to rally around this whole idea of poisons and really landfills and where they were. It was, it was sort of akin to, if you want to find the Black community, go across the railroad tracks. And across the railroad tracks, you find a Black community in the landfill. So it was really looking at landfills and those kinds of things and where they were situated and recognizing that these things were poisoning the community, creating asthma, you know, heart ailments and so on. So we had started looking at it and Bob and I had written an article called The Politics of Pollution. And we were really talking about land use and those kinds of things, which actually grew out of some work that he was doing. His wife was a lawyer working with a community in Houston, Texas, a black middle-class community that was fighting a landfill that they were getting ready to build right behind there. They were fighting it. And so out of that came research that started to show, well, look like all the landfills are in black communities, be they middle-class or poor. What's that about? So that race race came to see more of a, more of a factor than, than wealth. Yes, more of a, yes, it did matter what your um, income was. Race was the biggest driver. And it took us, oh Lord, 10, 15 years to keep saying it and showing data for people to finally accept that it is race because they're looking for an excuse for their racist behavior. And so the excuse was, oh, it's because they're poor and oh, it's because the land isn't worth anything. Well, I think Denzel and Oprah would have a lot to say about whether or not it's race or money with all of the different negative experiences they've had because of their race when people don't know they have money. So keep taking me through the story of how all this panned out. You'd been involved in these environmental justice cases, but where you've really based the body of your work, the so-called Mississippi River Chemical Corridor, you hadn't started your work there yet. So, so how did that come about? I think the EJ movement was building and we had started looking at Louisiana, but we weren't deep into it yet. And so because of who I am, a college professor and everything, I decided that I would do what we call participant observation. And I put some of my students in the car. At that time, I was at Xavier University. And we rode up and down the Mississippi River corridor to see what we could see and what we basically saw was black communities fence lines to huge petrochemical plants. Well, and then we'd see parcels of land with just slabs on it right across from where the black people were, but no one was there. No houses were there. So I asked the community people there, I said, well, what's that over there? And what used to be there? And, and I remember this one old man saying, he said, oh, you know, that's where the white folks live. And the boss came down and he said, uh, they bought them all out and they said they were coming back. They were going to buy our land out, but they, that was eight years ago and they didn't return. So the research that I started, I did a GIS mapping of the corridor, spatial distribution map based on TRI, toxic release inventory, emissions released from plants and proximity to, to communities. 
And I found, I did it for the whole corridor, including New Orleans. And I found that 80% of all African-Americans live within three miles of a polluting facility, just the opposite for white. But the thing that was so horrible about it was that it wasn't one facility. It was multiple facilities within those three miles, releasing thousands of different carcinogens. Because in order to, the toxic release inventory is uh, a system where you have to report extremely hazardous emissions on those that are considered carcinogens. So you have all of these. It's unbelievable when you look at the map, the amount of chemicals that are pounding upon the heads of Black people in the corridor every day, 24-7, and their fence line to it, which means they're getting even bigger doses of it. And the communities were, for example, when I went through, they were so concerned. They were putting little white crosses on their lawns to show all the family members who had died. And they believed that deaths were related to chemical exposure. So what are we talking about, kind of rare cancers and these sorts of, these sorts of things, childhood cancers? They were rare cancers in the sense that when they would try to fight the chemical plants and say, your plant is causing uh, our people to die, because it was, it, they, were, they were exposed to multiple chemicals, they never had a straight line from one chemical to the disease, the type of cancers they had. Be it brain, be it because they were all, because of combinations, the chemical plants knew that. They went to case all the time because they knew they could beat it and the science was not there. In other words, the scientists hadn't caught up with the synergistic effects of the combination effects of chemicals and the particular cancers that formed from those combinations. Yeah, and the burden of proof at the end of the day rests with the victim, right? That's right. Yeah, the proof, the burden of proof rests with the victim. So they were losing uh, those cases. And, you know, in all the cases that we won in the corridor, I have to say that it was the only science that came into play was political science. It was even when, you know, because you knew the real science was there, but you didn't prove it. What one cases was advocacy and pressure and letter writing and public opinion. These are the things that cause communities to be relocated or cause chemical plants on their own to reduce their emissions. The thing that's just so amazing about the chemical corridor is that Louisiana, in my, my mind, um, had politicians that were so backwards and many of them so corrupt that they didn't even realize uh, that the chemical companies did not realize the amount of chemicals they were releasing. The, and, and I think that it evolved out of racism. In other words, as long as the politicians were allowed to maintain the status quo. In other words, we'll let you come down here, but you cannot hire our black workers. We need them for the farms. This was a, this was a deal that was cut between the politicians and the oil companies to not hire black people. So here you are living fence line, but you can't get a job at the plant that's killing you and you, you're mired in poverty um, and can't even benefit from the poisons that are making other people wealthy 
racism was the driver. So I, I believe the oil companies realize all we have to do is give them what they want in terms of black people and they'll let us get away with anything. And that is exactly what happened. This just so focused on race. It's just like a sickness, I think, that you would hurt yourself while you're just so that you could hurt, you know, other people um, who have a different color skin, a different hair texture or whatever. It's really a sick, sick kind of place to be, but that's where they were. You're listening to Spoken Earth in conversation with Beverly Wright. After working in academia for many years, in 1992, she moved away from campus to found the first environmental justice center in the United States. I asked her how that center came about. Deep South Center for Environmental Justice really is a, a, a name that I don't like. I don't like Deep South, but it was a consensus name. If you know what I mean, if you have a whole group, nobody ever gets what they want. And everybody's stuck with something they just settled on, if you know what I mean. So we got stuck with the Deep South Center. I wanted the Southern Center for Environmental Justice or Gulf South or something. But Deep South, oh, that's where all the hangings and lynchings, I think, of Mississippi. When you say Deep South, that has a different meaning. But that's the name we had. That's the name that's known everywhere now. Through the Deep South Center, we came up with this community model trying to find ways for communities, professors to work in a more honest, equal relationship with communities, not top down, but equal relationship where community people certainly respect the knowledge and research of professors, but professors respecting community knowledge. And they had a lot of it. And also valuing community knowledge in such a way that they were compensated for their input in the same way that university professors were. And it sort of began with me just having lots of conversations with communities, having them to identify the problem, what they thought the needs were, and how did they think this could be fixed? What do you want us to do that you think could fix the problem? And so working up and down the river has always been you start with education. You have to start there educating the community. And we developed about 10 or 12 training modules for communities. We also, you know, like, what is the EPA? What is the Department of Environmental Quality? Who's responsible for it? So we took them through the whole structure of each of those agencies showing them what departments exist and what these departments are responsible for. So you don't just call DEQ and then they say, because there's a, you sell something, because what they say is, well, that's not my department. <laughs> you know, you call the wrong department, they're not going to send you any place else, they just shut it down. So they, our people got really sophisticated in understanding who they should call. And we started doing things like face-to-face -face, where we invited people from every division at EPA to the community and had our community people connect with them. So now they not only knew what department, they had a face and a name and a phone number. That's giving them power to be able to express whatever it is, you know, is going on. 
And we taught them lots of things, how to go online and look at medics to look at you know, what chemicals are in the air and what they do for you. And we had intense training classes up and down the river for about three years straight. They just became very organized, concerned citizens for Narco, concerned citizens for St. James Parish, concerned citizens for St. John's. They didn't have to have a 501c3. They just needed to get organized. And we were responsible for helping all of these communities get organized and begin working on their specific agendas as it related to the poisons. And then they came together on big things, showing up at permitting reviews and all of that and became a voice up and down the river. And out of that came the awareness of climate change. We were mostly working with uh, petrochemical plants and looking at the relationship between fossil fuels and climate change and understanding that the people most affected by fossil fuels would also be the people most affected by climate change and probably would not be able to recover. So, And so is that how the work led on to a movement that was fighting more explicitly for climate justice rather than just environmental justice? I wouldn't say we started the climate justice movement because it wasn't a movement then, but beginning to ask questions and then a climate justice movement began in Europe someplace because the people we were mostly talking to were not in the US. It kind of started elsewhere. We joined forces with third world people around climate justice. So for us, environmental justice and climate justice are like this. We can't separate it. Some people separate it, we don't. So it's the same people, the same industries that are destroying these communities are also destroying the earth and placing these communities in double jeopardy of harm. So for us, for EJ communities, this is, it's like this. For some people who don't embrace environmental justice, it's just climate change. And those are the people that we fight with. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm interested to, to talk about that. And I think particularly in the UK, it feels like, and you, you were saying that you worked a lot with Greenpeace, but it feels like there's a lot of those kind of organisations and also the more sort of grassroots extinction rebellion kind of movements where environmental justice even climate justice for a long time it has felt like an afterthought and I I know you've written as well that environmental movements were kind of quite preoccupied about wilderness and aesthetics and it was quite a sort of middle class preoccupation it feels like in the US that there's less of that but I just kind of wonder what your what your thoughts are on that it now feels like a lot of Extinction Rebellion and such lights are thinking like, well, how can we try and get sort of, you know, other groups on board with us? And from your experience, it feels like you've gone completely the other direction and it's come through civil rights and then it's gone through environmental justice. And now there's an awareness of climate change as well. And it's all connected, but it's kind of deeply connected rather than there's a kind of afterthought. Yeah, so it's deeply connected for environmental justice people, but it has not been deeply connected for the environmental community until more recently. It's what you were saying. So Greenpeace worked with us closely. The people in Greenpeace who worked with us closely suffered some severe ramifications of that work because it was pushed back from boards. The same thing happened with Sierra Club. When, when these green groups would start to talk about environmental justice, the boards would close down offices, fire people. People who give them money would say, I didn't give you money for this. 
I don't want to be involved in anything racial. This is about polar bears and the earth. It was a pretty nasty fight. It wasn't the move to the Greens coming on board with us to think about protecting people as well. Wasn't an easy fight and it was pretty nasty. Was it against bringing in race as an issue or was it because this sort of urban area? Is yeah, not- it was about race. It was about race. It was about race. You know, we talk about systemic racism. It goes through everything, even environmental issues of race. And so they saw environmental justice as people of color and a race issue. And they want, they, they didn't want to be involved in that. They didn't see the connection. They just wanted to save the trees, the polar bears, you know, so on. But over the last 30 years, that has been a struggle. It's a battle that we are winning and we're winning because they can't save the planet without saving us. It takes everybody on board to push Congress to do things. And because of this division, they haven't been able to get anything done. They, could, they couldn't get the EJ community on board with their uh, particular proposals to pr- reduce greenhouse gases. So we would say, we want greenhouse gases reduced, but we want our communities cleaned up. And the way you're dealing with carbon, the marketing of carbon is bound to make our communities dirtier. We would never sign on to them. They tried everything to get us in. And every time they went into a session and came out with something, we were throwing rocks at them. You know, so it's like crashing the glass house. So, you know, they're in there trying to talk and we're outside with signs, you know what I mean? Writing letters so they could not make any progress at all. They finally listened. They finally could hear what we were saying. And once they began to hear what we, we were saying, they realized this makes a lot of sense. It shouldn't be a zero-sum game. You know, so they, and, and my thing was, we're tired of suffering for the greater good. So to them, everybody should just want greenhouse gases to come down, regardless of what it's affecting or what it's hurting. Their thing was, let's get it down first, and then we'll deal with everything else. But what we know is that you're getting it down first. You never deal with us. And we're worse off because of the cap that you put. So all of these dirty industries would be able to buy, I call it chips, from the clean industries so they could keep polluting, but the overall numbers would come down. And we weren't having it. And now we've educated them to the point that they understand it better and realize, you know, maybe this is workable. We can do two things. And Cleaning up these neighborhoods helps everyone in the long run as it relates to pollution, air pollution in particular. And does it feel like it's going both ways? Not only do they get your EJ voice, but does it feel like the Big Green, the Sierra Club and and the rest of them are paying more attention to to local environmental justice battles as well? Oh, absolutely. We we have more that we agree on than what we disagree on. Um, And we're still working on the carbon stuff, and now it's more how to get there. And what we say is that there should be no system put in place where EJ communities don't benefit from the wealth of whatever it is. There needs to be some distribution of wealth inside of the community 
um, regardless of what system is put in place. That's one thing that this process does no harm to communities. That's what we're working on now. Where should we be? As opposed to, oh my God, it is too late. We can't worry about anybody. We just have to get this shit down. You know what I mean? And that's the, no, no. We, the, the, I, I can't think about you right now. And our thing is, you will think about us or we're all going down together. And now that they recognize that we mean this, they're at the table, you know? And I think they thought, okay, we'll have this conversation with them and we'll say, okay, we'll do it. And then when we go in with the politicians, we take it out and we come back and say, I tried. This is what the, their normal practice. Well, we tried, but they said no. So we're saying no. <laughs> we're saying no. So we're at a different stage. And then we had COVID and we had George Floyd and then COVID, which I think just took us from where we were at maybe a seven to a 10, green groups being able to hear us and really wanting to make a change. I mean, it is embarrassing, I think, for white people, any um, morals to see what's going on with the police and not be ashamed. We've been saying this, but most people didn't believe it. Or it's like, oh, well, it can't be that bad. But to find out it's not just that bad, it's worse than what you imagine that you could put in the closet and say, it just happens sometimes. I think that's been hard. It's been hard on a lot of the white friends that I have. I think a lot of people are feeling that, that things are coming to some sort of head at the moment. That's the, that's the feeling that I get. As you've already mentioned, George Floyd and COVID. But on the other hand, you've got these growing coalitions and Black Lives Matter and this growing awareness that you speak about. I wonder how you look forward to the next few years. Well, I believe that we're, we're at a crossroads here. And I believe that the arm of justice is bending towards justice, as they say, bending towards justice. It, it's, it's always been here leaning. Now I think it's starting to bend towards justice. But I think that because of social media, this situation that we find ourselves in, the reality of what has been going on, the lies that have been told over and over again, that we are at a point of no return. In other words, there's no way people are going back to what was there. The question is, what will the future look like? How do we carve out something that's doable and livable for the majority of us. I, I really enjoy seeing all the young kids out now because in our struggle, it was the older people. The young people were a small group in the Black community. They were a large group in Latino community and Native community. But in the Black community, the young people were a small group in the EJ movement, large group in the civil rights movement. So I'm really happy to see young people stepping up making the connection between environmental poisoning and racism and sexism and all of the other isms that exist out there. I'm very happy. And one of the goals of my center was to develop young people to fill in the spaces that we are ready to move out of. We're hoping for change. I hope I live long enough to see some real change and that my grandchildren that who aren't here yet will have a better world to live in.
You've been listening to Spoken Earth, edited and produced by Uli Mapson, music by Uli Mapson, performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Shoat. It's a Lacuna podcast, and we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.